Um, Pastor Matt is away. He's uh, attending to his family uh, in the wake of the death of his grandfather, who thankfully knew the Lord when he passed away. Um, and as I was considering uh, what to teach on this week, I, I read a lot of scripture and, and, and thought about it and prayed about it. And I spoke to my wife about it and about my struggle to decide. And she said, well, why don't you just teach where you're at in your weekly Bible study? And I said, no, 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 I can't, I can't just teach where I'm at in my Bible study because I don't get up here very often, right? So it's got to be something really profound, really <laughs> significant, right? Um, some special section of scripture. So I spent the next couple of days pouring over verses and reading chapters and um, really praying hard about it. And I, I did finally settle on what I wanted to teach on. So um, turn with me in your Bibles to exactly where I'm at in my weekly Bible study in <laughs> Acts 21. And let me remind men to uh, listen to your wives, please. <laughs> You'll save a lot of time. Uh, we'll be in Acts chapter 21. Uh, I'm going to look at verses 26 through 40 this morning. Excuse me. Uh, I'm going to read from the New American Standard translation, which I realize is not what's in the seat backs, but it's, uh, it's very close to a literal translation, and I want to stay close to the text this morning. So let me read the, uh, the verses for you, and I also want to note that a lot of stuff happens in this section of Scripture. This is really where the, the action of Acts kicks in uh, in many ways, and if you were going to make a, a film about Paul's life for Hollywood, you could do a lot worse than um, focusing on this section here. So this is chapter uh, 21 of Acts, starting in verse uh, 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. And when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. And while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, and he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another, and when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission... Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand, and when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect. Father, your word is good. It is all good, and it is all useful. And I pray that you will use this text to teach us all something, Father, about who you are and about who we are supposed to be and about how to bring glory to your name. Amen. This section of Acts doesn't contain a lot of doctrine. But it gives us a very good picture of what it's like to be committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which seems appropriate considering the film we're showing tonight and the class that we're going to start next week. 
Uh, as part of his travels and teaching throughout Asia Minor and Macedonia and Greece, Paul has been collecting an offering from the many churches for the poor saints in Jerusalem. He mentions these, uh, this offering in some of his other writings. Uh, he's been collecting these funds from the Asian and Macedonian churches for a couple reasons. One is to help the, the literally poor Christians in Jerusalem who are, uh, some of them starving, many of them poor, the poor saints is a literal phrase, but also he's doing this to help unite all the believers and to ease some of the tensions that still exist between Jew and Gentile, even though they both now believe in Jesus Christ. In Acts 19, Paul says that he's purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem, so we know that this is a, a calling that God has put on his heart. Uh, chapter 20, verse 16 tells us that Paul desires to be at Jerusalem by Pentecost, and so that's where we find ourselves in our scripture this morning, in Jerusalem, very near Pentecost, when there would be many, many people in the city, both locals and thousands and thousands of pilgrims coming in to visit the temple. <clears throat> at this point, uh, Paul has met with the elders of the Jerusalem church, uh, led by James. He's given them a report about the, uh, the work that he's been doing, um, and they're very excited about it, as they ought to be. But there's an issue uh, in that there is a contingent and it's a very large and a very vocal contingent uh, of both Jewish Christians and Jewish people in general who are not exactly fond of Paul's work sharing the, the gospel of grace with Gentiles of all people. And this is where we see the root of the anger that begins this process of Paul's capture and arrest. In verses 20 and 21, it says, and when they heard it, this is the elders of the church listening to Paul's uh, report of the ministry he's been doing. Uh, when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. And so here's the problem. God's people are zealous for the law, but as we know, the new covenant that Christ established in his blood is the way of salvation and not the law. And so there's a tension there between the Jews and the Christians and the Jewish Christians too. There's kind of a three-part anger going on. And they've been told about Paul and, and notice that the, they haven't come to this conclusion about Paul through some kind of you know, uh, rational and reasoned uh, examination of facts. Um, they've simply been led to believe this. They've let themselves be convinced by others. Um, they've been told that Paul has been teaching Jews elsewhere to forsake Moses and not to circumcise their children or to follow Jewish customs. And they've been told this stuff about Paul and they've chosen to believe it instead of looking at the facts for themselves. Unfortunately, the elders uh, at the church have an idea that is hopefully going to help uh, head off any potential issues Paul will face with these accusers. Um, they tell Paul they have four guys who are going through a, a vow in verse 23, a, a Nazarite vow. Um, and they say, Paul, why don't you go with these guys uh, into the temple and, and purify yourself with them and finish this vow and, and, if you, and pay for everything. And if you do that, then these accusers, well, they'll see that you're not anti-Jewish at all. That's the plan. That gets us to our verse 26 today. That's what it's talking about when it says, then Paul took the men, these four men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. A couple of things to note about the Nazarite vow. One is that Paul uh, has taken this at least once in his life already. We see that in Acts chapter 18. So the idea that these accusers had that Paul was somehow anti-Jewish custom was already obviously false, but Paul says, okay, I'll do this as a way to make doubly clear that he doesn't have anything against custom and practice. Uh, this vow is uh, described in Numbers chapter 6. 
And basically it consists of letting your hair grow long and abstaining from wine and strong drink and uh, staying uh, away from anything that would make you unclean uh, as a way to show that you are set apart for God for the duration of this vow. Uh, in verse 7 of number 6, it says that even if your mom or dad or your brother or sister dies, you can't go near them because to be near a dead body will defile you, and then you have to go through this ritual sacrifice um, and then restart the clock on your whole vow all over again. And that clock typically ran for 30 days. Sometimes it was longer. There are some Nazarites for life. Samson, you think about him, what do you think about? You think about his hair, right? Grew crazy long. John the Baptist, too, is a Nazarite for life. But typically it was a 30-day thing. Um, and number six gives very specific instructions for how you complete the vow. Uh, you're supposed to bring a, a male lamb and, and a ewe lamb and a ram, all of which, of course, are supposed to be spotless and the best, right? And a basket of unleavened cakes and a grain offering and a drink offering. And you give those things to the priest to be sacrificed. And then you shave your head at the entrance way. And then you take that hair and you burn it on the fire. And that kind of completes the, the whole process. So it's a very smelly ordeal. Um, so when the elders suggest to Paul that, hey, why don't you go with these guys and go through this process also and pay for it, we're talking about five lambs and five ewes and five rams and a whole bunch of bread and other stuff. And I don't, you know, I don't know what a ram costs, but basically Paul's buying an entire petting zoo to take in there. Right? This is not a small gesture. This is not pocket change. Um, and it's not supposed to be a small gesture because uh, this is a commitment that's supposed to be evidence to the riled-up Jews that Paul is not anti-Jewish and anti-custom. This is supposed to help them see that he's making this big sacrifice of his time and of his money and of his effort, and so that they will realize that they were wrong about him after all. But that's not what happens. Uh, verse 27 tells us that uh, when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him. And from this moment on, when the, when the crowd lays hands on Paul here in the temple... Basically, he spends most of the rest of his life in some kind of captivity. He spends time in chains, and he spends time in prison, and he spends time in house arrest. Um, but this is the kind of a turning point in the life of Paul where he spends most of the rest of his life locked up in some form or another. <clears throat> it's also a fulfillment of some prophecy that Paul had gotten on his way down to Jerusalem. On his way down, he stayed in Caesarea with Philip the Evangelist and his family. And while he was there, there was a prophet named Agabus who came by and gave a very weird and specific prophecy uh, in verse 11. It says, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. It's a very demonstrative kind of prophecy. You know, he couldn't have just said, hey, Paul, you're gonna get tied up. No, he takes Paul's belt, which is not, you know, it's different from our belts today. I mean, it's just a long sash kind of a thing. And he, to drive the point home, he ties himself up and makes this prophecy. You know, he's not kidding around. And it's profound enough and scary enough that all the people with Paul say, you know, maybe that's not a good idea for you to go to Jerusalem right now. Um, and they try to convince him not to. And Paul's response in verse 13 is to say, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And throughout the book of Acts and in his epistles, uh, we are frequently reminded of Paul's steadfastness or stubbornness might be a better word sometimes. Right? He's dedicated completely to his work in spreading the gospel, even to the point of death. And he's not afraid of that death as long as he's doing his work. And I think that part of the reason that he's not afraid is because it's not unexpected. 
By the time Paul's in Jerusalem here facing this particular crowd, uh, he's been threatened with death multiple times. He's been stoned and left for dead. He's been chased out of cities. He's been verbally and physically attacked. He's been hated, reviled. He's been everything. You know, you, that would build up kind of tolerance, I think, to, to antagonism, I would think. Um, but beyond that, none of it is unexpected. None of it's a surprise. Because God had shown Paul years before what he was going to have to go through. In Acts chapter 9, right after Saul at that point, is struck blind by the light of Jesus and confesses him as Lord. A guy named Ananias is visited by, by the Lord and who tells him to go and restore Saul's sight. And Ananias freaks out because he knows at that point Saul has been rounding up Christians. He's been dragging them out of their homes into prison and even to death. He doesn't want to go talk to this Saul guy. But God reassures him in Acts 9, 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul's chosen, God says, and I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And I want you to hang on to that, um, that last bit, that for my name's sake part. We're going to come back to that in a couple of minutes. And I have no doubt that God did show him how much he was going to have to suffer and that by the time Paul ends up in Jerusalem 20-some years later, he knows it really well, and he expects it. He's not afraid of it because he knows that it's God's will, and God's will is what he's after. And furthermore, he gets reminders about this all the time. Acts 20, 23 tells us uh, that in every city he goes to, the Holy Spirit testifies to him that bonds and affliction await him. Paul had a lot of time to get used to this idea that he was going to suffer. And this constant pressure built up in him a kind of sturdiness that I think probably few other men could possibly relate to. He was trained to suffer well. So this stirred-up crowd is not a surprise to him, um, and it's nothing he's going to freak out about. He's familiar with how these things go, and he's familiar also with who's behind it. Um, verse 27 tells us that it's the Jews from Asia responsible for the stirring up. Paul had been preaching in Asia uh, for many years. He made a lot of enemies of the cross there. Uh, these particular Jews saw him in Jerusalem and remembered him and I guess figured this was a good chance as any to get him out of their lives. And so they start to stir up the crowd. And that phrase, uh, to be stirred up, it's not a good translation. It's not a perfect translation. Um, you know, I think of stirring up, I think of like waffle batter or something, just kind of gently mixing it together. But that's not what's happening here. This is, this is anything but gentle, right? In other places, uh, we see in, for example, the riot in Ephesus in chapter 19, uh, where it talks about the crowd was confused. That's the same word there, confused. Um, and people didn't know what they were mad about. Uh, it's the same word. And in Acts 9, 22, when Paul is first converted and he goes to the Jews in Damascus um, and he starts proving to them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ, it says he confounds them. It's the same word, confounds, confused, stir up. And this is a really good description of a, of a mindless crowd, right? They are, they are confused as much as they are stirred up. A mob, this is a, a mob of people. You know, they're all acting and not one of them is thinking. <clears throat> So the Jews from Asia, they get the people in the temple riled up, they get them confused, um, and they go crying out in verse 28, men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So in this verse, they bring three charges against Paul. They say he's been teaching against the people, against the law, and against this place, meaning the, the temple. Um, and just briefly, I want to mention these claims are false, right? Paul was not in the habit of teaching against a lot of things, but of teaching a full understanding of things. Um, Paul had been teaching salvation to the Gentiles through faith in Jesus Christ. The Jews took this as him being antagonistic toward Judaism, but that's a poor understanding. Um, 
as Jesus taught himself, right? He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That's what Paul's been teaching. The second charge is that Paul taught against the law. Again, that's incorrect. Paul didn't teach against the law. He taught the law didn't save, that it doesn't make you righteous because only Christ does that. <clears throat> and uh, he, uh, he taught and the uh, Jerusalem Council agreed in chapter 15 of Acts that uh, it wasn't necessary for Jews to, to follow all the customs and laws or for Gentiles to follow all the laws and customs of Jews in order to become Christians. It was an unnecessary burden. <clears throat> the third charge that is that Paul was teaching against this place, the, the temple uh, in Jerusalem, and he did this by teaching that Jesus was the path to salvation and not the ritual sacrifices and priesthood and all that that had been in practice for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years uh, as a means to repent and be restored. So Paul didn't teach that the temple was bad against it, but that it was not the permanent repair of relationship with God that Christ is. <clears throat> Now, if you wanted to, you could look really hard and you could read into Paul's teachings and convince yourself that he's teaching against that stuff, but you'd have to ignore the obvious truth that what Paul taught was grace through faith in Jesus Christ to both Jew and Gentile and loved the Jewish people so much that he was ready to die in Jerusalem at their hands at this moment if that was what was necessary to show it. <clears throat> he was in the temple as, a, as an act of obedience to the elders of the church in Jerusalem, um, and as a practice in Jewish custom of the vow of the Nazarite, um, and in order to show his love to both Jew and Gentile, but more importantly, to show his love primarily for God. But the confused crowd doesn't see that. They say instead he's brought Greeks into the temple and defiled it in verse 28, and then verse 29 we see their, their rationale. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. They get the crowd riled up, to grab Paul based on an assumption. They supposed that he had brought somebody. <clears throat> they figured since they'd seen Trophimus around town with Paul and because Paul was so friendly with Gentiles that he must have surely brought him into the temple at some point and defiled it. All this is based off of a, a rumor at best. But the accusation itself is, is serious because the, the temple is, you know, is, it's the center of Jewish worship, right? You have the, the Holy of Holies, and then around that you have the, the holy place where the, uh, the showbread and the great menorah and the, uh, the priest would make offerings, and then surrounding that was the priest's court where the priest could go, and beyond that was the men's court, Jewish men, and beyond that was the women's court, and then outside all that stuff was the Gentile court around kind of the outside of the temple. They weren't allowed in the temple proper, and it was actually a capital offense. It was punishable by death if a Gentile was to go into the Jewish areas of the temple. You could be apprehended and executed. So that's what the confused crowd is getting at with Paul. Uh, they say that Trophimus is a Gentile. Paul's brought him into the temple probably at some point and therefore defiled it and deserving of death. And so verse 30 says that all the city was provoked and the people rushed together. And taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. So the crowd gloms onto him and yank him out of the temple and close the doors behind him to deliver some vigilante justice. But there are a couple of problems uh, for these folks. Uh, one is that the punishment for a Gentile entering the Jewish court uh, was a punishment for the Gentile. It's not Paul's responsibility to take that punishment on Trophimus' behalf. It was Trophimus, if he had gone into the temple, who would have faced the punishment. So they're going to hold Paul accountable for somebody else's sin, which, uh, as mobs in Jerusalem go, sounds very familiar. <clears throat> The second problem for the confused mob is the Romans. Because even though a Gentile entering the temple was a capital offense punishable by death, the Jews had been conquered by Rome, and the Romans did not allow their subjects to carry out executions. It was part of how they maintained order and control. 
At this point in history, the Roman Empire spans from Spain into Armenia and down into Egypt and across northern Africa. It's a, it's a span that's as wide as a North American continent. It is a huge place that covers dozens of present-day countries with their own customs and cultures and languages and practices and beliefs. And it was such an enormous empire that they couldn't control it by military might alone. They didn't have enough soldiers to control it by military might alone. So there was a, a very logical approach to it to kind of allow many of those regions to govern themselves, to have some autonomy so long as they paid their taxes and they were allegiant to Rome. And that's why for a long time, the Jews were allowed to continue on with all the stuff in the temple and to uh, have their feasts at Pentecost and so on. The Romans didn't mind local religions so much. Um, they wanted above anything else to have order and civility. Um, they would even, uh, they kept the high priest's garments um, locked away and would only let them out uh, at certain special times of year because they recognized the power that the high priest position held and, and they recognized that if they allowed that to get overused, their Jews might start some kind of rebellion. They were very meticulous about how they kept things in order. There's no tolerance for uproar in Roman territory. Um, and that's what things are coming to here uh, as this mob captures Paul. It's coming to an, an uproar and beyond that, a, a potential mob murder um, in the grounds of the, of the outside of the temple. Verses 31 and 32 tell us what they were doing to Paul. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and round down to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. They were beating Paul. They were trying to kill him. That was the anger of the crowd, the stirred-up, confused mob, that they were going to fly in the face of the Roman overlords and go ahead and commit murder. They were so mad. But the Romans come in. Uh, the report goes up to the uh, commander of the Roman cohort, and they come running in. And this would have happened very fast because at the uh, northwest uh, corner of the temple is, is Fort Antonia, uh, where Roman troops were stationed, 600 to 1,000 troops um, stationed there uh, with their centurions and the uh, commander himself, the Kiliarch. Um, and even then, the Romans, even though the Romans didn't have enough troops to, to spread out over their whole uh, empire um, just to dictate military rule, they did have certain groups in certain places at certain times. And in Jerusalem, at feast time, they wanted to have a station of troops there, especially just in case something got out of hand when there were so many people in the city. And so these guys are on the spot here. They run down these steps uh, into uh, the temple grounds. Um, and when they arrive, the Jews stop beating Paul at least for a few minutes. And that word, uh, the word beating, it means to, to strike with a staff uh, or, to, or to hit with a fist. So they were, I mean, Paul was bloodied and bruised and probably broken in many places by this point. And they were going to kill him. They had every intent to. But the Romans show up to deal with the confusion. And we see how they deal with it in verse 33. <clears throat> the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting, Away with him. So Paul is bound up and delivered into the hands of the Gentiles, just as Agabus had demonstrated in the house of Philip. <clears throat> we see the Romans' approach to uh, dissent and disorder is to, uh, when there's a kind of uproar, they see Paul's in the middle of it, they take him out of the way, right? 
take the thing that's causing the squabble out of it. This is like I deal with my kids, right? They're fighting over a toy, and I take the toy away, right? And then we figure out who had what when. <clears throat> that's what the Romans are doing. Very parental, I guess. Uh, so their primary concern is to separate Paul from uh, the Jews, right, to, to quell the, the tumult and to keep them from killing him. The Romans love law and order, and they also love to, to have it play out publicly um, for people to see, not, not in secret. That's why they, when they crucified people, they'd crucify them up on a hill, right? So everybody saw justice being played out. So the commander here, he wants, this, he wants the public process of justice to begin, so he starts asking questions like any good detective does, trying to figure out what happened. And verse 34 tells us that some are shouting one thing and some another. This is that confusion we talked about. The crowd is confused. They don't know what's going on. They are mindlessly angry. And if you've ever been around a mindless crowd, there are a few things as scary because they're so unpredictable. And they didn't even know why they were angry. It's just like the riot in Ephesus where they were yelling contradictory things and making fools of themselves until somebody came in and figured out what was going on. So the commander, he decides, let's just let things settle down. Let's take Paul out of here. He tries to get Paul back to the barracks. Uh, but the crowd isn't done being mindless yet. Verse 35, they have to literally, they have to carry Paul like on their shoulders to get him out of there because um, the crowd's still trying to beat him to death. You know, I don't know if they're reaching up with their sticks or throwing rocks at him or whatever, but they're trying even as he's on the shoulders of these Roman troops to kill him. And they're shouting, they're shouting away with him in verse 36, which is, it's such a harmless phrase in English, right? It, it, it seems to mean, you know, just, just get him out of my sight, please, so I don't have to worry about him. But that's not the sense that it has here or elsewhere in the Bible. In Luke 23, verse 18, it says, They cried out all together, saying, Away with this man, and release for us Barabbas. Away with this man. Who are they talking about? Talking about Jesus, yeah. Away with him. And note the response. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. Away with this man, crucify, crucify him. And we look also at John 19, verse 15. Uh, so they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Again, away with him, crucify him. The phrase doesn't mean just to put him out of sight. It literally means to, to make him not exist anymore. To remove him from the earth, to rid the world of him. That's what away with him means. They want him dead, so they don't have to worry about him anymore. And this after Paul has done everything he could to show the Jewish people that he's not antagonistic toward them, that he loves his own heritage, and they chant and they scream for his death as the Roman soldiers carry him out of the temple trying to keep him alive. At this point, Paul spent 20-plus years preaching the gospel. Um, he's been traveling constantly and facing adversity that we frankly can't comprehend. Um, he's determined to carry out the ministry that, as he says, God gave him whatever the cost is, and he faces the cost here, and he does it silently. You notice at this point, Paul hasn't said a word through all of this. This is the guy who wrote most of the New Testament. This is the guy who would teach for hours upon hours upon hours. He once taught so long that somebody listening to him fell asleep in a window, fell out of it, and died, and then Paul went down and he was raised back to life. <clears throat> this is a guy who refused to be silenced by kings or priests, and yet in this moment, throughout this whole ordeal in the temple, as people are after his life, he says nothing. 
until verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And I, every time I read this, I almost laugh because I imagine this scene. We've got you know, thousands of people of angry, mindless, violent people pushing and shoving and trying to get their hands on Paul, trying to hit him with their sticks um, so they can continue beating him until he's a lifeless pulp, right? Paul's up on the shoulders of these, these armed Roman soldiers trying to get him up these steps into the, the, the barracks. And as Paul's crowd surfing to safety, he looks over at the commander and he says, hey, can I say something? You know, I mean, he says, excuse me, sir, can I have a moment of your time? You know, how can he be so calm in this moment? It's insane. This crowd is trying to kill him, and he's talking to this commander like they just bumped into each other in the grocery store. You know, the, the, and the, the literal words here are, are even more amazing because he doesn't say, I have something to say to these people. He says, is it lawful for me to speak to you? He says, do I have permission to even speak to you, commander, dear sir? It's amazing the kind of calm and respect that Paul has in this, this situation. You know why Paul's so calm here? You know, I mentioned earlier that Paul has been told by God about the sufferings that he was going to face, that he's been warned by the Holy Spirit, um, that suffering and chains awaited him. He's been warned by prophets that he'd be bound and turned over to Gentiles. He'd been stoned to the brink of death. He'd been chased out of synagogues and towns. He'd been lowered in a basket like an infant out the city walls of Damascus in the middle of the night to avoid murder. Right? This man of anybody was so accustomed to the idea of being attacked that it seemed almost not to phase him. But I don't think that's all there is to it. I don't think it's simply a matter of Paul being so jaded and used to the harassment he faced that it didn't affect him anymore. I don't think we can simply look at Paul and think, well, there's a real martyr, a real sufferer, which is neat, but I can never relate to that experience. It doesn't mean much to me because things just aren't the same these days. I don't think that we can look at Paul and just be in awe as if he's some totally different person than us. And I want to be clear that he is a different person, right? He was called to his apostleship by Jesus Christ himself. He's obviously in a very different time and in a very different place than we find ourselves now. But remember that Paul is in Jerusalem uh, and why he's there. He's there to deliver an offering to the poor saints of the city and in order to show a unity between the Gentile churches and the Jewish Christians to help them understand that they are part of one and the same church, the same body, worshiping the same God, indwelt by the same Holy Spirit, and saved by the blood of the same Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why Paul is here. Ephesians 2, Paul writes, starting in verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's a Gentile for you. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and who broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. So, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone of the church and the one who brings us near to God. His blood is the price paid for the grace of our salvation. We are of one body, Jew and Gentile. The original apostles and the the present-day saints and Paul and you and me, we are part of the same body, the same body of Christ, the same church. The body that Paul writes about here is not some historical anachronism. It's alive today. And if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are part of that body, the same one that Paul was part of. Peter calls Titus in chapter 1, verse 4, a true child in common faith. Peter's second epistle begins by addressing, quote, those who have received a faith of the same kind of ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? Our days look different. Our customs look very different. Our time has been separated by 2,000 years and who knows how many thousands of miles. But we are part of the same body of faith, church, as Paul and of those Jewish Christians he was trying to reconcile with each other. And so we ought also to be prepared to have calm faith in the face of persecution of whatever kind comes at us, not because we've been accustomed to it the way Paul had been trained to, but because there was nothing left to lose. If you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, if you are born again, saved, secure, as as Peter puts it, in the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, then you have no reason to fear being bound or even to be put to death for Jesus' name. That's an important tag on all of that. You have no reason to fear losing your life because you have already given it up. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35. And he summoned the crowd of his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. A follower of Christ has to deny himself and take up his cross. What that literally means is that You know, the cross is the method of Jesus' death, obviously. And here he is telling people that those who want to follow him have to carry around the crossbar of their own cross around with them over their shoulders constantly as a reminder about the weight and the burden that it was. Now, obviously, he's not talking about a literal cross here, but he wants to remind his followers about the burden that it is, but also the grace that that it causes, right? Christ is after changed hearts, and he wants to be really clear about what the cost is. So he says, you know, you want to save your earthly life by, you know, avoiding persecution and shame and suffering? He says, go for it. But you will lose your eternal one with God, your eternal time worshiping Him. But if you choose to lose your earthly life, if you choose to let go of the earthly things, the comfort, the money, the self-righteousness, selfishness, whatever it is, for the gospel's sake, if you're willing to lose those things for Jesus' sake and the gospel's sake, and not for fame or for YouTube views or whatever, you can save your eternal life. And that's where Paul finds himself as he's on the shoulders of these Roman soldiers being carried up the steps into the garrison. He finds himself so willing to lose his present comfort for the sake of the gospel that there's not an ounce of fear in him. And that's where if you're really born again, if you really have faith that saves in Jesus Christ, you have already given up your life. There's nothing left for the angry mob or the Roman soldiers or the people in the synagogues or the unreached peoples of the world or your neighbors or the atheist worker, whoever, to take from you, right? They can't take your life if it's already been given up. 
And so Paul has no fear, and neither should you if you're saved. That commitment, the sacrifice, that full submission to Christ is one part of how to be an effective spreader of the gospel. I'm going to finish by taking up these last few verses here, and we're going to see another component of being an effective spreader of the gospel. Verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul said, I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. When he had given him permission, Paul standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect. This is a little confusing on the surface because there's a lot of weird history going on here that we don't have the background for that Luke doesn't give us. Um, So here's the background. The commander is surprised that Paul knows Greek. We know that Paul spoke Greek. He grew up in Tarsus, uh, which is a big city where Greek is the common language. Greek is the common language actually throughout most of the Roman Empire at this point. Um, the reason the commander is surprised is because he thought Paul was somebody else. He talks about an Egyptian who had led a revolt and thousands of assassins. So sometime previous to this, um, an Egyptian, a false prophet, had uh, rallied together a whole bunch of people to, to take back the, the Temple Mount. Um, and he gathered these folks to stage an uprising, and the Romans had had to come in and fight them off. And they managed to, to scatter all these assassins, um, but they didn't catch the leader Uh, of these rebels. He'd gotten away. And so the commander here uh, presumably thinks that Paul is this leader of these assassins, or that at least he's one of the assassins, and that that's why the people have been attacking him. They They figured out who he was, and they're trying to get back at him for his work. The word assassin here means a uh, it means a dagger man. These are people who could, uh, they would have a short sword they could keep in their cloak, and you could go up to somebody uh, in a busy place like the temple, crowded at, at feast time, and pull that sword out, kill someone, get it back in your cloak, and be able to wander off because there's so much stuff going on and so many people around, nobody would ever know. Um, those are the kind of the assassins they were talking about there. So the commander is confused. He thinks that they've caught one of these guys, <clears throat> and that's why they're so angry. So he's confused, and Paul explains who he actually is. And he says, he says two identifying things about himself. He says he's a Jew, and he's originally from Tarsus and Cilicia. And these are important facts probably because it, they explain that he's not the, the Egyptian rebel. But actually, it, it shows the commander that he is a Jew, that he has every right to be in the temple, especially now at, at this feast time, um, the same as the people who are attacking him. He has every right to be there. It gives him some credence. And Tarsus, as Paul says is a, a, a not insignificant city. Um, it's actually a, a huge city, one of the biggest in the empire. Um, and it was famous for its uh, philosophy and its art and its culture and education. Um, it's really kind of up there with like Athens and Rome at this point. Uh, there was a library there at one point that had 200,000 books in it, which is astonishing when you think that every one of those books had to be handwritten and handbound. It's a big library. The, uh, the tutor of the first Roman emperor, Augustus, was from Tarsus. Um, so there, there's been this kind of connection between uh, Tarsus as being a, a good city in, and for the empire. And so that gives him some, uh, some credence in front of the uh, commander as well to say that he's from Tarsus. So Paul divulges these things about himself, and it's enough that the commander listens to him and says, okay, we'll, we'll set you down and uh, let you speak to the crowd. And I, don't, I have a hard time imagining, you know, 
having this huge group of people be so mad that they were so desperate to kill you and have soldiers carrying you away to safety and you say, actually, I'd like to stay and chat with these folks for a minute, if you don't mind. You know, I mean, that's the kind of fearlessness we're talking about that he had because of his commitment to Christ. So Paul stands on these stairs leading up to the Roman fort and it says he, says he motioned with his hand to the people. Um, this is a bloodthirsty crowd that's been screaming nonsense at him for who knows how long and yet he waves his hand and there's a great hush. It's a pretty powerful moment. And the only other time that word for hush is used in the New Testament is in Revelation 8.1, where the lamb breaks the seventh seal and there's a silence in heaven for half an hour. So it's a pretty profound kind of silence we're talking about here, especially among what was happening just a few moments ago. I don't have time to get into what Paul actually said, starting in chapter 22, but I want to look at how he said what he said in the Hebrew dialect. That would be Aramaic. That was what the Hebrews spoke at the time. Um, Greek was, a, as I said, a predominant language in the empire. Um, Paul may have known some Latin, too, just from having been a Roman citizen and growing up. Uh, and he probably spoke Hebrew as well, given that that's what the Old Testament was written in and that he studied for so long under, under Gamaliel. Um, but here he speaks in the language of the Hebrews in Aramaic. Not everyone could have done this. Not everyone could have spoken to the commander in Greek, which he spoke, and then to the people in Aramaic, which they spoke. Not everyone could have worked with the uh, Gentile churches to raise an offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Not everyone could have performed the Jewish vow, the Nazarite, and gone into the temple. And not everyone could have traveled throughout Asia Minor and Syria and Macedonia and Greece and taken the gospel to an entirely new continent in Europe. Not everyone had been trained at the feet of the best teacher in all of Judea. And not everyone could have had the same confidence in the flesh that, that Paul could have had circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. It's Philippians 3, verses 5 and 6. Paul lays out his credentials. He is profoundly qualified and capable and intelligent and experienced for his work. And it is work that only Paul could do. He was the one prepared for that particular work, for those particular joys, and for those particular sufferings. He spoke the languages he needed to speak. He knew the customs he needed to know in the places that he went. He had the connections he needed to have. He had the skills to maintain his own income while he was preaching. He had the diligence he needed to show in his work. He had the knowledge he needed from his studies under Gamaliel and as a Pharisee to teach and to prove from Scripture that Jesus was the Messiah. And he had the testimony of his own radical transformation and confession of Christ as Lord. Only Paul could have done the work that Paul did. God prepared that man for his work by all the circumstances of his life before he was even born. And God used the things that Paul experienced, everything from his intelligence and his education and his position to his multilingual fluency, um, to spread the gospel. But even in that preparation, even in that perfectly prepared life, all the stuff that Paul learned and did up to that point. Paul had to give his life to Christ in order to be effective in the way that God planned. Being familiar with being attacked and hated wasn't enough. Being skilled and equipped and knowing languages wasn't enough. Paul had to have given his life over to Jesus in order to be able to ask the commander for a moment of his time and then to speak in front of a crowd that wanted nothing more than to finish him off. To have that kind of peace, he had to have given his life to Christ. 
That's what enables that. Paul could have been every bit as prepared in his intellect and in his personality and his resources and been absolutely useless for the gospel. But he had given his life over to Christ. He bore his cross daily. And because of that, he was not afraid of losing his life because he'd already given it up. Our circumstances have prepared us too. We may not understand how or why or be able to see the connections clearly, and we don't have to have it figured out or to know exactly what it is that we're supposed to be doing. But there is work that is ours to do. And the responsibility, our responsibility, is to read Mark 8, 34 and 35 and say, I accept that arrangement to give our lives up to God, to be born again by grace through faith in the blood and redemptive work of Jesus Christ, to have a new life that cannot be taken and therefore makes us fearless. So as we gather this evening to watch this film on the gospel, and as we go into next week's class on sharing the gospel, it is vital that we understand what it means, what the gospel is, and in order to share it, that we both know it and have accepted it and are ready to give up our lives for it. We don't have to be apostle level, like Paul, super smart and highly educated and well-traveled and be able to speak Greek and, and Hebrew and Aramaic. That is not our work. That was Paul's work. Our work is different, but it's a different part of the same body that Paul was part of. And there may be similarities in, in some of our work to what Paul did if you go on missions or you end up teaching or whatever, but for the most part, our work is going to look different. But before, before we're going to be much use in any work, we first have to give up our lives. And if you've never done that, think very carefully about what Christ asks of you and of what he offers you. He alone offers salvation, a chance to save your life by losing it. It is a beautiful exchange, and it is always, always worth it. Lord, you alone are good, and we thank you, thank you for the precious gift of your son's sacrifice on the cross that gives us a way to eternal life with you. We thank you for your holiness, for your divine planning, and your persistence after our broken human hearts. We thank you for the preparation that you've put into each one of our lives. As we talk and learn about sharing the gospel of Christ with others, Lord, would you please do a wonderful work among non-believers? May many come to know who you are. You know, may hardened hearts be softened, and may lukewarm hearts be set on fire for you, and may you use us in all of our varied circumstances and abilities to bring you glory. Amen.